0: This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine This Week has been provided by RSM.
1: Prepare for challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax, and consulting for the middle market.
0: And now, here's your host, John McElroy.
1: I want to thank you for joining us on AutoLine this week. You know, there's all this talk of a U.S. manufacturing renaissance, but today we're going to talk about the U.S. tooling industry, because if you can't make dyes and jigs and molds and tools, there isn't going to be a U.S. manufacturing renaissance. We're going to rely on other countries like China to make it happen. And so to talk about the American tool industry, we've got an expert on that, Lori Harbor from Harbor IQ and Harbor Results.
0: Harbor IQ, I guess I should say, is a study that you just put out, is that right? That's right, Harbor IQ does all of our benchmarking activities that we do on the tool industry and plastics and stamping as well.
1: Oh, okay, real good. Also joining us today is Gary Vasilash, the editor of Automotive Design and Production Magazine. Gary, always good to have you here. Thank you, too. I appreciate it Somebody much. who knows something about manufacturing. <laughs> good to have you on here. Laurie, let's talk about your, your latest uh, tooling study. You showed that in 2019, there were 10 different tool shops that closed in the United States, Mm -hmm. laying off some 2,000 workers. Doesn't sound like a lot. But this year, you're predicting that 75 mold and dye shops are going to close. Why? What's going on in the tooling industry right now, apropos of the automotive industry?
0: Yeah, it's a real, as you said, manufacturing sort of renaissance, although tooling is absolutely critical for every part on a vehicle. Uh, There's a lot of competition coming out of China, but we're also sort of going through a bit of a— an evolution in the design of an automobile. So as we move to electrification and autonomous product, the vehicle itself is changing. And the OEMs are kind of in that R&D mode and design phase right now. So some future launches have, have slowed um, with some of the uncertainty in the market and the need to go into a new type of mobility. We are seeing them sort of do more facelifts or a heavy facelift and, and less all new vehicles, at least for the time being. And so that's slowed down some of the demand for tools. And frankly, China has become a very big threat. The, the plastics tooling and stamping industry is part of their China 2025 plan. And so as a result, they're being very aggressive on tooling from China. So as OEMs need to cut cost to invest in vehicles, they're turning to China for, for a lot of their tooling and that's having an impact. Laurie, explain
2: what Tools, dies, jigs, and fixtures are. I mean, sure. You know, we, we use these terms all the time, but I think that um, they're not necessarily clear to people. And, and why do people? Why do why do OEMs rely on other companies to do? Make these things for them.
0: Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, well, the vehicle itself obviously is is built on a platform of steel, right? So every single metal part in a car has to come from a die that a, a small company, you, you know, stamping out uh, the steel exactly, to make the part. Exactly, it's stamping out the steel to make the part. And then every plastic part in the car has a a, a mold, and we pour you know liquid resin into that, and it forms that part. Um, similarly die castings, right? We pour metal into a mold and it forms that die cast part. So there's not a part on the car that doesn't come from some form of tool. It's an industry that's about 10 billion a year in the North American market for automobile only. Mm -hmm. And and frankly, anything we use, an appliance, a, a snowblower, a lawnmower, all those things also use tools to form those parts. So it's a very intricate part of the industry. It's very critical to every piece of manufacturing that there is. And so for a long time it built middle America and we have something of like 100,000 people just in the Midwest alone making tools. But it's the critical first step in a car. And a lot of people don't as you said understand exactly what those tools are, but they're very important to the production of a vehicle. And, and these are small independent companies? Yes, yeah, so typically there's a, there's about 5 to 600 companies just in the Midwest primarily. It's really centered around kind of Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, and a lot in the Windsor, Ontario area. And so it's, it's typically a third, fourth generation um, company that, you know, a grandfather started. Many of them came over from Europe and settled here and, and have very um, uh, interesting sort of German backgrounds around designing tools. And they're typically tend to... 50 million dollar companies, not really larger than that. There's a real tipping point if you get over 50 million, it becomes very difficult to service because it's a job shop. We don't get a, we don't get a contract to make a thousand parts a year, we get a contract to make one tool, then they like to call them like one snowflake because everyone is different. And so it requires you know, in- intricate design and, and all you know, comes from the OEM's design of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Gary asked a,
1: a question I want to have you follow up on. Why don't the automakers have their own tool and die shops? Or do
0: they? So years ago, in the 60s and 70s, the, the companies like GM, Ford and Chrysler particularly had their own die shops. And they were also part of the United Auto Workers. And, and as, you, as time went by, because it was a very skilled trade, you had workers who were making a tremendous amount of money and they found that they were able to source some of these same tools to the outside at a much lower cost because a typical vehicle program, if you pick sort of like a Ford Edge, if I build a new Ford Edge, there's probably five to $600 million worth of tooling, dyes and molds just in that Ford Edge. So, three years later, I do a mid-cycle enhancement, there's another three or four hundred million in tooling. Maybe I do a facelift, that's a hundred million in tooling. So when you add all that up across all the models that we have, it was very expensive. And the OEMs could really only make a very small portion. So as they sort of rationalized their business through the eighties and the nineties to be more productive, tooling was one of those things that they felt they could buy on the outside for much cheaper. particularly because many of the tools used are run at vendors or tier one suppliers. So a Magna makes a a fascia for a General Motors car. They're letting Magna spec the tool from that tool maker as opposed to making it themselves. Mm -hmm. What,
2: What accounts for the number of bankruptcies beyond the shift to electrification. I'm, I'm assuming that there's gotta be other factors, um, slow down in the industry in general, or, or, I mean, what are you seeing?
0: A- absolutely, so in 2017, it was a huge year for tooling. We did about 10 and a half billion in North America alone and another two or three billion from China that supported the industry, because we had heavy launches, lots of new SUVs, CUVs being launched in the market that never even existed, right? Products that weren't on the road back then. And so then things began to slow down, and, and that was sort of like our high point. Normally, we would have been more like a 9 and a half to $10 billion market. In the 2018 calendar year and into 2019, we had this big launch from the FCA group of this WLWS, right, New Grand Cherokee and Wagoneer, that got put on delay. When a delay occurs in the industry that has that much tooling in it, it was about a $1 billion worth of tooling, it sort of slows the industry down, you know? So the I got tooling industry. The tooling industry. I got awarded the program, so I have a, propo- a purchase order for $20 million in tooling, and you just put it on a six-month hold. Now I'm empty because I don't have much you know, to fill it with. I can't just land a new piece of business to fill it with. So that was some of it, but the other piece that occurred was as we had fewer launches in 2018 and 2019, and even into 2020, we're expecting fewer launches. So what I mean by that is, there was somewhere in the range of 60 launches a year in 16 and 17. You're saying new cars, trucks, vans, and all that. Exactly. We're down to about 45 last year and this year. So the indus- that means there's less of a sort of wallet to go after and grab as a tool supplier. That slowed the global industry down. So China got much more aggressive in their pricing. And if you remember back, if we if we get political for just a second, we had... In July of 2018, we had some 301 tariffs get applied to China tooling, particularly molds initially and then later dies. In December, when the government was on shutdown here in December of, of 2018, we actually had the big tier ones file for an exception saying they can't find tooling in the U.S., they have to buy from China. Was that true? Um, it, it was. Um, Not true in that there was available capacity, but not at the price point in which the OEMs wanted to see target pricing. And so they petitioned to get an exception, and the government lifted that tariff. So for the whole of 19, there was no tariff on molds. There was a tariff on dyes, but not molds. That happened at the same time the industry slowed and the WLWS went on hold. And so China was empty, too. And because it's part of their 2025 strategy, they got very aggressive on pricing. You've mentioned that twice. Explain briefly what what do you mean by China 2025? So China has put together a strategy that says here's the manufacturing industries that we want to be in and we want to go after and be a global economy in those particular Manufacturing space. They they want to dominate those sectors. Exactly. So stamping is one of those, uh, plastic injection molding is another, and tooling is a big portion of it. If you ever go to the Shenzhen area of China, you could literally throw a rock and hit a hundred tool suppliers on one block making injection molds because they're just, they're popping up everywhere. So there's a real focus on that and the government has helped support the building of that industry, which allows them to be a little more aggressive on pricing. And with labor costs as they are, frankly, a U.S. tool shop, they just can't compete. The gap on labor is too difficult. So the other last thing that occurred to answer your question is that we did have this attack on the industry and tooling 15, 20 years ago. And we had a bunch of tool suppliers who said, no, I'm serious about this. I'm not going to run a job shop anymore. I'm going to actually work on efficiency just like we saw 20 years ago or 30 years ago with the OEMs. They started diagnosing every element of their process and they turned tool building into a process, into an assembly flow. And they attacked all the waste and they drove efficiency. Well, when they did that, it allowed them to be more cost competitive. So now they've grown their capacity in the industry over the last five years, something like 500 million of these kind of top 20 companies that that we study on a regular basis, When they open up that much capacity, now they can sort of attack the smaller shops who maybe are not as efficient and can't price as effectively. So they've gone and and almost put some of their brethren out of business because they were able to win the work at a better price point that the OEMs could support.
2: Is it scale or efficiency?
0: Um, It's primarily efficiency, but that efficiency has allowed them to scale. In other words, they got better at programming a CNC machine. They put standards into place. They designed standards into a mold and worked with their tier one to create that. So when it goes in the CNC, it cuts more effectively, opens up more capacity, thus creating more scale. So they didn't necessarily go in and spend another $50 million on new equipment, although they, they churn and update equipment, they really drove efficiency within their process. And then in that file, final tool assembly, just like anything we would see in an assembly plant, they took every single step of the process, defined a cycle time for it, and said it should take this long to put uh, you know, water lines into an injection mold. Mm-hmm. And then they, they started measuring their people on that process. They mm-hmm. turned it into a process. You know, I remember uh, back in the 1970s, A lot of
1: tooling started to migrate to Japan. That was the low-cost supplier at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably in the 80s and 90s, it then transferred to Taiwan because Japan got to be too expensive. After that, it went to China. Mm -hmm. And certainly in the last 20 years, we've seen the domestic, the US auto industry, outsource, offshore, so much tooling, going after a cheap price. But interestingly, Honda, Honda of America, always bought US tools or a, a significant part of it because it felt there was an advantage to having a tool supplier in the nearby region. You know, not thousands and thousands of miles away because if there was a problem, that company could come and service it right away. And as you know, if the assembly line stops, boy, you're, you're bleeding red ink. Right. What kind of advantage is there to having a domestic tool supplier from that standpoint? And are any of the OEMs or suppliers Going with a domestic source for that reason?
0: It's, it's a huge advantage. And to be honest, if you if you talk to a Tier 1 supplier in a in an environment like over a beer, they would say to you, I don't want to buy tools in China. I don't want to go there. It takes time and energy away from my business. I want to go across the street or over to Grand Rapids and solve my problems or have them come to me and solve the problem. The challenge that I see in the industry right now is that If I'm a General Motors, a traditional OEM, and I'm competing against a a Tesla, a Rivian, or whatever the new model is for automotive mobility, I am currently in the environment of having to invest in all of this ICE technology and the new mobility. Whereas a Rivian is only investing in new electrification, right? So I have doubled the investment. So I have to save everywhere I can. So if I'm a company like GM that buys Three to four billion dollars a year in molds and dyes. If I can save 5,000 on your tool and 10,000 on your tool and 50,000 on that tool, and I buy 1,000 tools a year, I've now saved millions of dollars. And because it's so tight now that they need that investment for new mobility, they're looking to China and all of these other regions to try to find as much tooling as they can, regardless of the long term effect of running the part. We haven't still gotten very good at, at full total cost of a tool. We look at purchase order price for that tool and savings at that point, but we don't look at scrap and lead time and you know all the issues downstream for the life of the program that we run that tool. If we could get to that, I think we would make some different decisions over, over time.
2: When you were describing the nature of, of many of these shops, it sounded almost artisanal. That, mm-hmm. that uh, you know, So, so mm-hmm. if we're going to buy an artisanal beer or an artisanal cheese, we're going we're gonna to spend more money on doing that. Okay, is that the case? Are these small companies investing enough in process technology? You mentioned CNC machines. Are they investing enough in that? And the third portion is, Are there skilled people who are able to do these things in the United States? Great question.
0: It is very much something that they view to be an art. It's not a process, right? Now, there are many who have changed that thinking, but I still go to shops today who say, that's not how this works in tooling. We're an art. We have to tweak it. We have to massage it. So that's the mentality that I fear is going away in those 75 shops you talk about, because they haven't sort of grabbed on to the new new way of making a tool. The the best are certainly investing in new technology and in the investment of that new technology, they're also tying that to resources because the number one problem in tooling is the lack of skilled trade. You know, the these skilled trade workers are making 25 to 30 dollars an hour, lots of overtime, six figures in, the, in back in the day they raised families and sent their kids to college on this kind of of money. But it's been dirty manufacturing over the years. And so lots of, th- lots of them told their children to go to college, not to come into this, this skilled labor. So it's the number one problem a toolmaker has. So when the best have purchased this equipment, they've tied that to those standards I talked about. If they can create the standards, now I don't need this highly skilled, 10-year experienced toolmaker. Because if I program the machine right, it's going to cut right. And then I come out and I have, you know, I have to massage it and hand work it, which is what sort of the old thinking is. So many, we, we actually see a lot of companies who will go buy a new $3 million piece of equipment, but run it the way they used to. They're the ones not getting the efficiency. Those who have tied it to design standards and process standards in this new way of building a tool are absolutely seeing the efficiency. And their, their level of skilled, their job, their, their thought process is, how do I eliminate the need for 100 skilled laborers? Maybe I only need 20 and then I can go, go get other people that I can train over time.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, the history of tool making in the United States is, is really one for the history books. We were recognized, even in the late 1700s, At really good at making tools. Mm-hmm. In the 19th century, absolutely, the, the U.S. was probably the dominant or certainly one of the major, major players in it. It, it. It's critically important. I love what you're talking about of looking at total life cycle cost of the tool, not just initial purchase price, which is what the OEMs and the, and the tiers are looking at. What other suggestions do you have? How do we help? What, what should the United States be doing as a country to make sure it's got a vibrant tool and dye industry?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to say that we can, we can get a ton of support from the government the way some of these other countries like China do, um, and, and we don't have as much of that support, but these tool makers have got to um, think about how they work differently within their customer base. And remember, their customer's typically a tier one, even though that part's going to a GM Ford or Chrysler. You mentioned something earlier about Honda, which I wanna tie into the answer to your question. Honda looks at that total life cycle, which is one of the reasons they like to see some tool suppliers here. However, they do still purchase a lot of tools in Japan, and the Germans still buy a lot of tools in Germany, and they're also still all using China. So one unique thing about this tool industry that we've built up over these years is typically 85% of their work goes to a domestic OEM. So you guys know the data as well as I do, the domestic's share of the market has gone down dramatically and continues to go down. We now have something like 23 OEMs that by 2025 will be making cars in North America. When you count Rivian and Lucid and Workhorse and all these guys. Tesla, yeah. Tesla. So, so these, tr- these traditional tool makers have not been great at selling and selling their business. You know, they're tool makers and the work kind of just came to them. GM and Ford and the suppliers would call them. They have to put sales processes in place. They have to diversify. We've got to find a way to get into Honda. We've got to find a way to get into BMW and the people who are growing share here, Tesla and the others. Some of these new startups, their first thought is go to China. We have to show them why we can be that life cycle provider for them. So we have to think differently. We have to sort of I kind of joke with them. You have to operate like a real business now. You know, we can't just be the, the garage shop that we used to be in the past.
2: Lori, if if we had a if we had a die for a hood or a roof or a door, and it was made in the U.S., Japan, China, Germany,
0: mm-hmm.
2: would all four be different, or would they essentially be the same?
0: That's a great question. Um, the reality is, unfortunately. In some OEMs, they're different, and it's because they choose a different tier one. We tried with a couple OEMs we worked with to say, so if I source you, Mr. Grand Rapids tool shop, the die, I want you to make four replicate tools to run in those regions. The problem was you might have had Magna building it here and Gestamp building it in Germany and some China shop in China. Well, they all spec differently based on their equipment of the press line. So as much as the OEMs wanted to do it, what the OEMs couldn't do was commonize the tier one. So if they could commonize it, then yes, they're able to leverage it. And, and you would have dramatic cost reduction on the tools mm. because you, you wouldn't have to redesign the tool every time. Mm. So it's not happening as much as you would like. And, and, you know, John, you and I have talked for years about common platforms, common parts, things that we thought were going to happen 30 years ago that didn't happen at the speed that we wanted to. And now they're talking about it again If we can move to that, we're gonna continue to commonize. That's some of the reason that we're gonna see more fallout of tool suppliers. Um, Think about the Tesla instrument panel, right? You guys drive all these cars. We're going to what the the, the Ford would call reductive design, that where we don't have all the buttons and the knobs for the radio and the air control, uh, you know, the HVAC and the windows, we push a button on our screen that means I don't need all those molds. And as we talked with you know, Ford's um, team that are creating all their new electric vehicles, you know, the Mach-E, if you look at their instrument panel, they've taken some of that out. And they're saying we're gonna apply more of that reductive design to ICE vehicles, because we gotta save money on tooling. So when you put all of these factors together, it's why we're seeing the fallout of tool suppliers. If there's just not going to be as much to go around, we think it's going to be six and a half to seven billion for the next three or four years in terms of demand for tooling, which is down three to four billion from where we were.
1: Which is why you're predicting 75 tool and die shops are going to close in right. the U.S. this year alone.
0: Right. Right. It, probably over the next couple of years, okay. um, just because it'll take them some time to kind of get through some of these. Um, these old school third and fourth generation shops have done a phenomenal job of controlling their balance sheets and their fine. Like they don't take that on, but they also don't invest into equipment. So it'll allow them to kind of hang on and, and, and stay around longer than maybe some others. But there are a lot that are on the in the 10 that we talked about were shops that I could only put my finger on right now. Yeah. There's more.
1: Laurie, I've got to believe there's a, a national security element to this. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have tool and die, it, it's one thing not yeah. being able to make cars and trucks and all that domestically. I've got to believe there's a lot of military applications that uh, fall in line with this as well. Absolutely.
0: And my, my, I, I actually worked with my team on trying to get this mold tariff reinstated, which, by the way, did get reinstated on December 28th. Um, one of our biggest arguments was To follow along with the administration's focus on national security, every time we send a 3D diagram to China for a new powertrain component or a new instrument panel, we just gave up our entire intellectual property. And a lot of the vehicles that you see from Chinese-owned shops over there, I mean, it's been proven, right? They have used some of the designs that we have um, over here in the U.S. and in North America. So... Um, there's an absolute security risk there. We we do make tools in China that support the military and aerospace and defense. They're a little pickier about which ones they put over there, and there's quite a bit less demand for military and aerospace tooling just because of life cycles are much longer. Uh, but it is it is absolutely an issue, and and frankly, it's one of the reasons why it was part of the 301 tariffs, mm-hmm. so we can make it more difficult to purchase tools over there. And with a 25% tariff it does make our tool suppliers here more competitive. For sure, they have a better chance, especially those who have improved efficiency. They can they can start to close the gap a little bit and be more competitive on tooling.
1: Mm-hmm. We're down to the the very end here, but one thing, uh, real quick, you know, you were talking about electric cars. The talk is going to this so-called skateboard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of the chassis mm-hmm. uh, and uh, steering and brakes, all, and you just put a different body on top, or to use the industry jargon, the top hat. That, too, might limit some business.
0: A- absolutely. Huge impact to dye manufacturers because they're not making that, you know, standard sort of platform we see in cars or the frame of a truck there's definitely some components they can make on the skateboard. Certainly, there's new um, battery componentry that that die shops have been able to make um, dies for. On the mold side, they'll get affected by this reductive design, but they'll also see some benefit from, like, an autonomous vehicle because the customization will be different. It's like your seat on the airplane with, you know, electrical plugs and TVs and a a different seat. So we're we're hearing from the Tier 1 plastics processors that you'll see a lot more molds because of that.
1: Look, we're going to have to uh, wrap this up right now, but thanks so much for coming in. Very interesting discussion. Uh, So if you want to learn more about this. Look for Harbor Results, H-A-R-B-O-U-R. Yes. But Lori Harbor, thanks so much for coming on.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate
1: yeah, it. And Gary, always great to have you on thanks, as John. well. I, of course, want to thank all of you for having tuned in.
0: Underwriting for the production of AutoLine This Week has been provided by RSM.
1: challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities experience the power of being understood rsm audit tax and consulting for the middle market